0: 500
1: years. <laughs> Hello there, friends. This is Jeff Till with the new episode of Five Hundred Years dot org podcast. It's February eighteenth, two thousand sixteen. Today's topic is the F word in America, part two. The New England Patriots suck. Today's topic will further explore fascism in the United States. In the last episode. We declared that fascism was largely third position economics, which is a combination of state control and private ownership, uh, but also had two other features, which was nationalism and intense militarism. This episode's going to be about nationalism.
2: You know, we hear a lot, especially during campaign season, about how great America is or how great America was. We grew up, I grew up hearing that America was number one, and I never questioned that. I was we are number one, damn it, and we'll kill anyone who says we aren't. <laughs> but I wondered what kids today think. So we sent a camera crew out on the street to ask them, what is the best country in the world? And this is what the kids had to say.
3: An informed patriotism is what we want. And are we doing a good enough job teaching our children what America is and what she represents in the long history of the world? Those of us who are over 35 or so years of age grew up in a different America. We were taught very directly what it means to be an American. And we absorbed almost in the air a love of country and an appreciation of its institutions. If you didn't get these things from your family, you got them from the neighborhood. From the father down the street who fought in Korea, or the family who lost someone at Anzio. Or you can get a sense of patriotism from school. Patriotism from school. It's a patriotism from school. It's a patriotism from school. America today is a proud, free nation, decent and civil, a place we cannot help but love. We know in our hearts, not loudly and proudly, but as a simple fact that this country has meaning beyond what we see and that our strength is a force for good. Americans are asking, why do they hate us? They hate what they see right here in this chamber. A democratically elected government their leaders are self-appointed they hate our freedoms our freedom of religion our freedom of speech our freedom to vote and assemble and disagree with each other with every atrocity they hope that America grows fearful retreating from the world and forsaking our friends they stand against us because we stand in their way. We're not deceived by their pretenses to piety. We have seen their kind before. They are the heirs of all the murderous ideologies of the 20th century. By sacrificing human life to serve their radical visions, by abandoning every value except the will to power, they follow in the path of fascism, nazism, and totalitarianism and they will follow that path all the way to where it ends, in history's unmarked grave of discarded lies.
2: We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the stars and stripes, all of us defending the United States of America.
1: You must all think that I'm a sadistic asshole for making you listen to three and a half minutes of United States Presidents. I'm very, very sorry about that. But hopefully, by the end of the podcast, you'll see the point of their inclusion. Today, as I said, we're going to talk about nationalism. I'm pretty sure you know what nationalism is. It's the sense of patriotism or unity amongst a country that is fostered by the culture and the government uh, usually taking the form uh, of patriotism. And usually there's a sense of exceptionalism or a sense that the peoples of that unified nation are superior to other people who live in other places. Uh, nationalism can have some nasty brothers and sisters, such as xenophobia and racism, uh, both which most people think is pretty nasty. Uh, nationalism, some people, and patriotism celebrate uh, most people probably celebrate it. At the same time, uh, we know that it's one of these components that creates a fascistic state along with the third position e- economics and militarism. So when we look at nationalism in the United States, we have to ask, you know, do we have it? How much do we have? And does its existence make us more fascistic or not? and that's what i want to think about for a little bit now nationalism is incredibly useful for governments uh anytime you can get people to create this artificial construct that they somehow are integrated together uh, just because they live on the same piece of land and are governed by the same government, you can develop a lot of arbitrary powers that you wouldn't get if people didn't find uh, an, uh, a natural cohesion between, or not an unnatural, a natural, but more of a uh, or celebrated cohesion uh, amongst a bunch of people. For one, uh, the government likes to attach itself onto the sense of uh, patriotism and nationalism, Instead of uh, suggesting that they're sort of ruling from the top and that they're a separate class of people with different rights, which is what they are, because they espouse the right to use violence and theft, whereas the usual population cannot, uh, they say that they're part of the, the nation and part of uh, the nationalistic sort of fabric. So that sort of one cover that makes them uh, belong with all the regular people is because they're all supposedly serving the same goal. And then if we think of specific uh, functions of the government or even society, uh, if we think of like right wing type of things like war and soldiering and fear, uh, these things are all very much achieved by nationalism. It's very hard to convince someone to uh, put on a uniform, travel 6,000 miles and kill perfect strangers unless they believe they're doing it for their country, which in itself is a very abstract notion or that the fact that their obligation to protect everyone else is somehow born uh, out of this sense of patriotism and not their own rational self-interest. It's also a great way to put fear into people. Right now, during the presidential campaign, uh, Jeb Bush is running ads that have a picture of George W. Bush saying, elect Jeb, he will keep you safe. And so through nationalism, we... As ordinary people can somehow feel threatened uh, for absolutely no good reason, so without nationalism, there's someone 6,000 miles away they tell me who 's ever met me, uh, who i 've never wronged, uh, that they want to kill me and that they need to protect me. Well, I can only feel threatened by that if the everyone within the nation, all of those who uh, feel the nationalism, are threatened as well. So we're all put together in one group of, as a target, just based on our country, and we're told we have to be afraid. And this, of course, doesn't work if we are, indiv- you know, individualistic instead of nationalistic. Uh, that also, they're also campaigning on these other Republicans on building a giant wall to keep out immigrants, so that we're supposed to be fearful for our jobs and our laws, and probably to some extent our women and children. And again, it's the People on one side of the border are bad and the people who are within our nation are good and just, uh, you know, regardless of that most of the people are people that I haven't met and pretty much everyone in the nation doesn't know who of the other people in the nation are. They only know that they belong to the same one. Uh, on the left kind of, uh, side of things, nationalism lets us believe that we are some kind of extended herd or family. And in this, that they can build uh, duties and obligations that wouldn't exist uh, without the sense of nationalism. So taxation itself is often seen as sort of a social contract type of thing that we've all agreed to pay. Uh, someone who dodges taxes is sort of seen as bad because they're not, you know, pulling their fair share. They're they're violating this sort of big family, this big herd, this big, you know, unified collective. Uh, the same thing with like providing food or. Or healthcare in this manner. You know, there's some guy in Ohio who I've never met yet. I'm supposed to be, have feel some obligation to make sure that he has a a doctor and a meal because we both, you know, live in the United States of America. Or more ridiculous, that I somehow have, that this person in Ohio owes me something uh, because we live in the same country. You know, this is the power of nationalism. And even the most bleeding heart. And kind-hearted progressive finds that their their empathy empathy and sympathies and desire for justice end right where the border ends so a person in el paso texas belongs to our national health care system our national welfare system someone who lives a foot below the border uh, or lives a thousand miles away in the other direction that's not in our country uh, is suddenly not a target of our cares and affections <coughs> Most Americans, I would say, really cherish their nationalism and their patriotism. And we're going to go through several examples of this. But anytime you see an American flag on a house or we get to sing a patriotic song before a sporting event, uh, people consider that like an honor. And at the same time, libertarians for sure would find nationalism to be an arbitrary and dangerous thing. Uh, Along the same lines as uh, racism or collectivism, where, you know, you just arbitrarily assign power and allegiance uh, based on a a geography or a demographic. But even then, most people, if you point out nationalism in other non-American contexts, either find it dangerous or sometimes silly. So when we talk about how terrible the Nazi Germans were, and we bring up those images of the swastika flags... And the children in Hitler Youth, and we tell the stories of how they were uh, taught their nationalism and, and their loyalty to the state, you know, through the public schooling system. Uh, almost all people sort of shriek back in horror and find it to be a terrible thing. Uh, nationalism looks very ugly. And the same thing goes with stories from North Korea, where the nationalism seems so great. They make up, uh, besides having the, their own flags and their own stories and their own school system, you know, they make up uh, stories that the automobile was invented in North Korea by their, their grand leader and that gravity itself only exists because of the existence of the North Korean government. The same can be said for Russia, uh, especially in its uh, heyday of communism uh, or China. And then other times we just uh, we look at other countries' nationalism and it looks kind of trite or cute or, uh, silly, you know, if we think about Canadians or French people or, you know, someone in in what we consider some little dipshit country actually being nationalistic, uh, it just looks kind of stupid because, you know, we think we're in the most awesome country and how dare they, you know, think that there's French or Canadian exceptionalism where they're actually the superior race and the superior piece of real estate. So I think everyone even people who celebrate patriotism and our own nationalism think that part's good. I think everyone's a little skeptical or questioning of nationalism as a you know, gross rank concept in itself. Mom, I- Now, if I were to have an imaginary conversation with, say, my in-laws or just about anybody else in the world, and I started talking about American nationalism being somewhat similar to either those destructive or ugly kind of nationalisms such as in North Korea or Germany, uh, or even the silly uh, ones I mentioned of Canada or France or something. You know, I think people would start to get confused because I, how I would lay it out is I would say, well, look at these cases of nationalism. It's a vital component of fascism and totalitarianism. And you could see how it was, you know, rankly destructive in these other places. And then I would say, well, we have it here too. And they would say, well, no, 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 no. We'd have just a very little bit of it. Uh, we have this nice little, nice little bit of fascism uh, I'm sorry, we have this nice little bit of nationalism uh, where we, you know, celebrate 4th of July and uh, sometimes we hear a song and sometimes we wear a pin, but that's about it. It's not that destructive kind that uh, enables bad things to happen. And then maybe the argument would continue. It's like, well, yeah, but if I showed you all of this nationalism that's a bit, bit bigger than you than you think, and then I show you our war footprint and how willing we are to kill other people overseas. I say we, which is a, a nationalistic tick right there, I should say, the U.S. government, you know, to go and kill people overseas or then be afraid because we've had, you know, three terrorist attacks in the last 10 years because of that, or, or tell me that I have an obligation to pay taxes or an obligation to, you know, help perfect strangers who live thousands of miles away based on our national identity, then things start to get dicey. And so then I think you have to say, you know, look, is our nationalism a fascistic element? How much is there you know, and how bad has it really got. So anyways, let's uh, let's start taking some individual instances of nationalism that we see in everyday life and see where they fit on the nationalism crazy
0: scale. the night flag was still there
1: I think the first place to look when examining nationalism in the United States, is in its fundamental how people fundamentally view patriotism. And here in America, I think it's widely considered that patriotism, which is really just an expression of nationalism, is a virtue. Uh, such a virtue that to uh, say that the country is bad, or to say that you're not particularly patriotic, or even worse, that you eschew patriotism altogether. Uh, will get you a lot of cross-stairs and a lot of condemnation from your neighbors and friends. Now, how do we come to realize that patriotism is a virtue? Well, the big place, is for, is, of course, is how you raise children. So just like fundamentalist Christians and Muslims have to use indoctrination and training to make sure that their children believe uh, false, you know, batshit kind of ideas. The same as with patriotism is uh, in both their parents, the community, and especially school in teaching it to them on a day-to-day basis. So that's where the false belief that patriotism is a virtue comes in. And if you can see through just talking with people or with how people demonstrate this behavior... It's very clear that this is very deep-seated, and we all know from our own uh, school experiences, from going from the pledge to the presidents on the wall to our understanding of history, that patriotism was indeed taught to us. It is not a state of nature. It does not happen just because someone lands on a particular piece of real estate. It's very purposely and forcefully put into us. Now, I had my friend Chris. uh, We were having a conversation, and I tried to make the case that all bad ideas or most bad ideas come from indoctrinating children uh, such as uh, you know, fundamental religion and uh, nationalism and he said well on on religion, what about missionary work in Africa? There you have you know evangelical or campaigning Christians that come into a tribe of people who have a completely different religion or no religion and then try to convince adults to uh, buy into their religion. And I I don't know this for sure. I don't have direct research, so maybe someone can correct me. But I think the first thing missionaries do is, besides uh, bribe the the local population uh, with food and supplies, is they set up a school and they set up a church and they get their children to go. So they probably don't even concern themselves too much with whether that adult generation is actually coming on board. With adopting Christianity, as long as they can put in that free school and that free church, then they know for sure the next generation is going to come along. And what kind of a evil thing that is is that when you gift a poor village with a school and a church, uh, everyone thinks that's such a wonderful piece of uh, humanity and charity. When really those two are the factories of indoctrination and the factories of false belief. It feels scary when you think about it that way. The over the Have you heard about this thing called American exceptionalism? Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from Wikipedia, because uh, I'm sure you've heard this uh, term in the news before, uh, or even uh, heard it said. It's, it's essentially the idea that America is superior to other countries and so much so that we can do things that other countries don't do, and it is either morally or otherwise justified. So, uh, American exceptionalism is one of three related ideas. The first is that the history of the United States is inherently different from other nations. In this view, American exceptionalism stems from its emergence from the American Revolution, thereby becoming what political scientists Seymour Martin Lipset called the first new nation, and developing a uniquely American ideology, Americanism, based on liberty, egalitarianism, individualism, republicanism, democracy, and laissez-faire for business. Ooh, uh, so that I just I just read that from Wikipedia. So that's that's a mouthful right there because that last line sounds like a lot of good stuff. You know, liberty, individualism and laissez-faire for business, and then the other the other concepts in there that maybe other people would like include egalitarianism, republicanism, and democracy. This I- ideology itself is often referred to as American exceptionalism. Second is the idea that America has a unique mission to transform the world. As Abraham Lincoln put in the Gettysburg Address, Americans have a duty to see that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Third is the sense that its history and its mission give the United States a superiority over other nations. So this is really kind of a loaded concept, isn't it? That they could sell on this. And you can't really be patriotic unless you genuinely believe that your nation is uh, is morally and intellectually and culturally superior than others. Uh, otherwise, there wouldn't be a point. You wouldn't say like, "Hooray, we're the you know the fifth best," and our you know our patriotism uh, doesn't uh, allow us you know any special benefits. If it didn't have special benefits, then you wouldn't bother adopting the ideology. So this idea of American exceptionalism is is fundamental to patriotism and to nationalism. But what's interesting is they actually use this uh, on the TV, like in newscasts, and politicians will actually state this as as a real reason for why we can do something. Uh, I say we, but the the United States government can do something that others can't. And why that might sound good, usually that other thing that they do is something awful like sending soldiers to go kill people. Now, the fact that they have to load this concept of American exceptionalism and essentially patriotism with ideas such as liberty, egalitarianism, individualism, democracy, and laissez-faire is because, um, you know, they're lying. Because it's, it's actually to adopt a patriotic, nationalistic viewpoint is to give up all of these things, such as liberty and individualism. Uh, Having a shared sense of patriotism is the exact opposite of freedom and individualism. It's collectivism. So they didn't say that this uh, American exceptionalism is part of a collective ideology, but that's exactly what it is. If we all have it, and it's all in the nation, and it's part of patriotism, then it's collectivism. It's not individualism. And then this other thing, that the sense that it's history gives us a mission to promote uh, American ideals elsewhere is also strangely dangerous. It's this, this kind of uh, BSE line that of government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth, when really it's uh, government for government, not government of the people, by the people, or for the people. <laughs> ¶¶ Okay, So in terms of indoctrinating young children with nationalism, the Pledge of Allegiance has to be the most disgusting thing going, or at least one of the most disgusting things going. We don't have to even talk about the sort of well-known fact that the pledge was developed by a socialist uh, at the turn of the century and was largely implemented as a campaign to sell flags. This is all true. You can go, Wikipedia has the whole thing written up in a very objective way. But let's just, I mean, there's there's a couple things I want to talk about the Pledge. And the first one is that it's a mandatory speech that's recited every single day of a child's school life. So starting at age four and a half or five, every day that they're at school, they recite this prayer to the government and to a lesser extent to God. And they are essentially forced to do this for 13 years. So every single day, that's how the entire school day is, is begun and framed, as sort of uh, this pledge of faith, this pledge of allegiance, this this pledge of uh, dedicating oneself to the government. And I've heard other arguments where people take the language and say it's not a celebration of government, but about America, meaning You know, which I guess includes the people and the real estate and our assets and our culture, etc. But really, if you look at the language, it's, you know, I pledge allegiance. So it's I, I give my, you know, unbreaking, full dedication, my allegiance to the flag, which right there, you're like, well, that's kind of that's kind of fucked up. Uh, You're giving your allegiance to a piece of cloth. And then the the counter arguments like, well, no, it's it's uh, uh, pledge allegiance to the flag. For which it stands, uh, the United States of America. The for which it stands, meaning it stands for the republic. So, what's the full text? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation. So, when you say you're pledging the flag for which it stands, a republic, you're actually saying you're pledging your allegiance, you know, supposedly to the republic. So you don't even need the the middleman right there, the flag. You can just say, I pledge allegiance to the republic. And what's a republic? Well, that's a form of government. So the prayer, the pledge of allegiance prayer, is very explicitly a daily, you know, indoctrinating pledge to the government. And that is just, you know, rank nationalism through and through. And it's a, a total taking over and taking advantage of young children. More details now on the music program being cut at the Shade Central City School District. At tonight's board meeting, no changes were made to the plan that was voted on last month. Students and parents rallied before the meeting trying to sway the decision maker. So, do you know any patriotic songs? I bet you do. And where would you learn these songs? Well, probably when you were a kid. And definitely when you were in school in music class. In fact, that's probably just about all you sang. Some people say, well, there's not too many, but let's check out. Let me know how many of these you recognize. I'd like to thank the Young American All Stars for those renditions of patriotic songs. Uh, That's an actual album you can buy from, I guess, Semi Pro Children, uh, who, along with those songs, uh, they also do some other ones like uh, some Neil Diamond and some other more contemporary music that's patriotic. Anyway, all of those I did recognize. I only played the ones that I did recognize, and all of those I I know I learned in school. Again, starting when probably I was five years old. And if you take a note, uh, most of those songs have a pretty positive and reverent view of America. Very few of them are particularly critical. I don't think they have any songs about uh, op- you know Operation Starvation, uh, Hiroshima, or Japanese internment camps. Although that tends to be the attitude towards government in school anyways, which we'll talk about in a second. Now, I have I found this other website called ClassroomClassics.com. It's a music site for children. Or actually, it looks more like for educators, for teachers. And if you go to the Patriotic Songs for Children, they have sheet music uh, and instructions on how to perform the music. I was going to guess that there was going to be about 10 songs, uh, mostly those big ones that you just heard such as um, This Land is Your Land, America the Beautiful, The Star-Spangled Banner, etc. On here, they have nine collections, each with about somewhere between 10 to 12 songs each. So there's easily 100 titles listed on this website for patriotic music to teach children. And so they have a new, th- this new collection, Forever Free, new for Veterans Day, uh, freedom Isn't Free, Standing Up for Freedom, The Armed Forces Medley, Thank You Military, You're a Hero, The USA Chant Song, I Love America. Uh, in the God Bless the USA series, we have titles such as God Bless the USA, of course. Uh, 50 Nifty, United States, uh, This Is My Country, and Let Freedom Ring. The They have our flag, the red, white, and blue What's more American? Uh, Peace in our lives. That's interesting. Uh, Coming home in glory. A lot of uh, pro-soldier, a lot of pro-soldiering, pro-war stuff in here. Which, again, just sort of reinforces the fact that we need indoctrinated nationalism in order to support killing people overseas. It just would be impossible any other way. And what better way to instill indoctrinated nationalism than by teaching young children catchy songs? Let's see. Oh, Let's Vote America. This is in the We the People section. I like that one. Uh, The Light of Liberty. Family. Foundation of Our Nation. Three Branches of Our Government. Now, the song Three Branches of Our Government has to be one of the driest of the bunch. I can't imagine how catchy that one is. Following that is the Bill of Rights, and then In America's History. Let's see what else. Anything else good here? Hooray for the USA! I love America's again. I guess that's a repeat. You're a hero, American heroes. That hero could be you, which must be practically a military recruitment song aimed at children. Uh, anyway, this list goes on and on. Now that I read through, there's quite a bit of repeats. Maybe there isn't quite a hundred songs, but there's quite a few. And the, the message is clear. Uh, feed these to your children if you want them to be good Americans. Sadly, I'm realizing that my own homeschooled, unschooled children probably don't recognize any of those songs except for maybe the Star-Spangled Banner. And for a second, I thought, like, well, that's kind of a big piece of my heritage, or by growing up is remember singing all those songs. But, you know, if I think about it for more than two seconds, what a great gift I'm giving them.
3: Congress refuses to grant any of my proposals on independence... Even so much as the courtesy of open debate,
2: Good God, what in hell are you waiting for?? Thomas, for God's sake, listen to him.
1: Besides this pledge of allegiance, the songs, the flags, and every other sort of very formal artifact of nationalism and indoctrination in the schools. There's the content of education itself, and I'm going to repeat here two uh, paragraphs from my very first podcast quickly, and it's about learning history. Most history, as it is taught in schools, is political history. Almost every event described is either the work of a president or a war. Even when non-government events are covered, such as the Great Depression or the Million Man March, the story usually hinges on how the government responded. Schools narrow the scope of history to government and usually only portray a positive view of the students own government for example americas children learn that america is great for example students probably don't learn that the true body counts of american wars or how many people have been incarcerated in its prison system so i don't think i have to spend too much time on this it's sort of the great man theory of history that they are there's these presidents and great politicians that sort of direct how history has unfolded in the world, and especially America. You also note that there's typically a very, not only just pro-American, but the scope of most learning is US-centric. So and that, that makes sense from a practical standpoint that you'd spend more time learning the states in our country than you would the countries of the world. And that maybe the history of America would be more interesting than the history of, say, China but there's very much a lot of Americanism and a lot of nationalism in the curriculum of school itself. And almost no criticism whatsoever. Uh, Just like there's no songs about Hiroshima. The mention of it in the classroom isn't explored very much at all.
2: Nationalism does nothing but teach you how to hate people that you never met. And... All of a sudden, you take pride in accomplishments you had no part in whatsoever, and you brag about Yo. Like the Americans would go, fuck the French! Fuck the French! If we hadn't saved their ass in two world wars, they'd be speaking German right now! You go, oh, was that us? That was us? Was, was that me and you, Tommy? We saved the French? Jesus! I know I blacked out a little bit after that fourth shot of Jägermeister last night, but I don't, I don't remember. I know we went through the Wendy's drive-thru. We are going to get one of them fresh set of sandwiches. It looked so alluring on the commercial, but then we ordered it and realized we had no money and we had to ditch out before the second window. And those douchebags in line behind us with the bass music probably got our order. And out. We laughed about that, but I don't remember saving the French I went through the last ten calls on my cell phone and there's nothing incoming or outgoing to the French looking for muscle on a project. I checked my pants, there's no mud stains on the knees from where we were garroting krauts in the trenches at Verdun. I think we didn't do anything but watch sports bloopers while we got hammered. I think we should shut the fuck up.
1: So I don't think I need to add anything to that, gem. But nationalism, just like we talked about earlier, how it can have you accept blame, uh, accept fear that's inherited from the the tribe. Uh, you can also have you, or obligation. It can also have you adopt pride in accomplishments you had nothing to do with. Uh, same as when we say we uh, we attacked world, in World War II, we we landed on the moon etc both for actions in the past and even ones that happen today so when they say we passed the ACA it really wasn't us it was the government yet our nationalistic bent makes us take credit for everything the same phenomenon happens with sporting teams where people will feel tribalistic towards the sporting team that they like and so for example i'm a new england patriots fan And uh, so it's not unusual to say, like, we won the game or we just got a new tight end, even though I am not on the team and have nothing to do with the team except that I watch it on TV. Now, in sports, I think it's part of the fun of the game. So there's a little bit of, what would you call it, like a suspension of disbelief or a little bit of make-believe that you do to be tribalistic with the, the team and its fans, and that's fun. But that doesn't get anybody killed, and it doesn't produce economic fascism, and it doesn't require indoctrinating our children.
0: Are you politically afraid, sir, to veto the flag
2: statute If you truly believe it's the wrong way to go? No,
3: I think it's an expression, an overwhelming expression on the part of the Congress, to uh, to. Uh, uh, do something about the, about the protection of the flag. So I'm not going to veto it, but I don't think it's enough.
1: So there's President Bush Sr. talking about the flag statute, I believe. I think this is uh, 1989, following a court case where a Texas guy burned a flag and then it became a big part of the national conversation of whether burning a flag was freedom of speech uh, or against state law. And really just an evil thing to do. And the bigger point of this is that people consider the flag magical. Uh, That's why they both get upset when it's a political statement, when one's burned, and they want to ban that burning. Or why people go so crazy to actually go and burn one. Because it's not like, uh, you know, they're just saying, "f you... To the world, they're actually committing an act, uh, you know, of evil against holy, I guess. Or they're destroying something that people see magical. And you can also see this in the treatment of like flags in the military or Boy Scouts where if the proper procedures for not folding the flag and storing the flag are not followed, you know, there's sort of real penalties attached to this. If if the flag touches the ground, presumably its magic is spoiled and it must be burned in in the proper way, not like in the protest way. And then they even got upset in time when people would have make handkerchiefs out of the US flag or would make a patch, you know, into the bottom of your jeans with one uh, or have other other depictions of the flag that they thought were disrespectful. And again, that just shows, you know, the flag stands for the government. It's showing that the the government and its symbol is mythical and magical and should be revered. And again, this is just all part of our nationalism conversation. Another thing about flags is tell me what's up, with people putting flags on their houses and their businesses while they're in the United States. Now, I could see if you were nationalistic and you were abroad and you wanted to let everyone know that you were an American. Or similarly, if you came from a different country and you're hanging out here, you'd say, oh, I um, have Irish heritage, and so you put out the Irish flag. But for the most part, everyone who lives here is Already an American, and everyone pretty much knows it. What's the point in putting essentially a sign on your house saying uh, "I'm in America" and "I'm an American" and "I'm happy about it"? You know, it just um, it it barely makes sense. And I, you know, I can sort of understand if it's the Fourth of July or whatever. But every day, and if so, if you go around my neighborhood, there's flags uh, at least on half the houses. Uh, Some people also put flags of their favorite football team or their favorite university. And that sort of makes sense because not everybody is the same. You get to actually, you know, identify your uniqueness by putting that sign outside your house. But the the act and the the general ubiquity of American flags and houses just seems weird to me. But again, with all the other nationalism type stuff that we've been talking about, you know, maybe it's just natural behavior that comes out of that. Let's talk about holidays for a minute. Holidays are another place where it seems that the government really wants us to be nationalistic. Of the bank holidays listed, there's about a dozen, you know, such as New Year's Day, Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas Day, etc. And about half of them, though, are explicitly nationalistic or government-based. And they include President's Day, Memorial Day, Independence Day, Columbus Day, which I would argue is also nationalistic, since it was the guy who supposedly found our country. Veterans Day. So we already have what's this two that are celebrating the military, and one, the President's Day, really kind of sucks it because it's about the president. And then, arguably, you could even put uh, Thanksgiving into this this topic. Because even though Thanksgiving doesn't have an explicit government message, it always is about sort of the history of the founding of the country and is explicitly unique to the country itself. So it seems to me that if half the holidays are about celebrating the government, and it's enough of a celebration to take the day off work and actually do something different, and that those days are more special than other days... I just think that's
2: fucked up.
1: How about nationalism in media and entertainment? Even if we look at the news itself as being primary media function, We see that they are very nationalistic. You will almost never see any kind of bad things that the U.S. is doing. If they do, it's usually only poised as conservative versus liberal uh, or liberal versus conservative, but never really point out fundamental flaws in the government and the overarching system itself. When you get to entertainment, you can go through all sorts of movies um, I'd have a list here that includes like the Patriot, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Independence Day, Born on the 4th of July, Red Dawn, Yankee Doodle Dandy, Act of Valor, Captain America, the First Avenger, Black Hawk Down, uh, another Air Force One, We Were Soldiers, American Sniper, Sergeant York, you know, Abraham Lincoln, JFK, The Sands of Iwo Jima, Pearl Harbor. Patriot games, clear and present danger, ballad of a soldier, a few good men, men of armor, and it you know it just goes on. There's a scroll here on Google that just shows endless films about war. Here's heroes, revolution, behind enemy lines, Rambo. There's just no end to movies that either celebrate government or celebrate war, and in all of these, it's heroic to be an American. Uh, Video games uh, suffer from this as well, with probably one of the most popular video games being Call of Duty, which enables you to be a U.S. soldier killing people en masse.
0: You sure gotta climb a lot of steps to get to this capitol building here in Washington. Well, I wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is.
3: I'm just a bill, yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill Well, it's a long, long journey to the capital city It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee But I know I'll be a law
0: someday At least I hope and pray that I will But today I am still
1: Okay, you don't have to listen to that whole thing But, yep, you know, even the children's programming gets the nationalistic treatment. Made in America. How many times have you heard the importance of something, uh, be it a car or a piece of clothing or a piece of merchandise or anything else, that it's so much better when it's made in America? Because then you're supporting American jobs, you're a sporting the American economy, and you're doing what's right for the country. Now, sometimes this plea is made in a straight nationalistic tone where we're just talking about uh, American superiority in either manufacturing or uh, in our our business culture. And that's why Made in America is such an important decision when you're uh, making a purchase, that you're actually showing some national pride. When you choose to buy that Ford Focus instead of that Toyota Camry. This was especially exaggerated in the car industry, especially in the 80s. And where I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, it was almost people were rapacious about making sure that you bought American and did not buy from overseas. Now, other people try to make an economic case that when you buy something local, that you are stimulating your local economy because the money stays there. And, you know, your neighbor gets to make the sale instead of someone far away. But if you think about what makes for good economics, if the, you're buying the Made in America product because of its Made in America, despite the fact that it might be more expensive or lower quality, uh, than the foreign product, which might be cheaper and of higher quality. And this was exactly what happened when Toyota cars came. Uh, they were cheaper and they were better quality. And the Ford and GM and Chrysler cars were getting continually uh, worse in quality and rising in cost. And especially during the Lee uh series uh, back in the 80s, where he uh, famously wrote, about how he he helped the company and how the the Japanese uh, were getting unfair advantage in the market but anyways if for anything whether it's a textile uh, a car a microwave whatever if you buy something because of nationalism because it's made in America but you get a lower quality product and it costs more you're actually economically more poor I mean just definitionally you're more poor and so if Everyone is doing things to purposely make themselves more poor, then that's not good for your local economy. It might be good for the manufacturer that's benefiting from using the Made in America sign to guilt people into buying their product over one that would make them less poor. But even then, you're sort of robbing that local manufacturer the real signal that they should be trying to improve their quality or lower their cost of their products. Because eventually... And we saw this happen with the car market. People, the the nationalism will only when it, when the finally hits your wallet will only take you so far, and and being biased against the purchase. Eventually, people just started, even in Detroit, buying the Toyotas, uh, and the Hondas and the Subarus, because the the priced and quality differential was just so much, and that probably I don't I don't have uh, research on this, but that probably was part of the reason why the American auto manufacturers were so caught off guard in the race for quality and price. Not the only factor, of course, but a big one. And had they had paid attention to a real economic signal, maybe they would have got their ship turned right much sooner. I wasn't planning this in my outline because I don't listen to country music. But when looking for audio clips to go in between voice segments, I came across Toby Keith, who is a famous country singer. And a lot, a lot of his songs are about nationalism, patriotism, and how cool it is to be an American. What's interesting about this is that he is not explicitly paid or set up by the government to do this. He is not part of the propaganda machine of the state. Instead, he willfully does this on his own. Of course, now he has gone through the public schools as well as all of his audience. And really, it shows two things. One is how effective the nationalistic program has been in influencing real people. And then two, once you give it to them, they can have it sprout and reinforce themselves in some very aggressive ways. And this would very much sort of explain the popularity of the pro-American, anti-immigrant, pro-fear campaign that the likes of Donald Trump is currently doing in the presidential election here in the U.S. Anyways, that track that you just listened to was a song called Made in America, and I'll read you some of the lyrics. My old man's that old man spent his life living off the land, dirty hands and a clean soul. It breaks his heart seeing foreign cars filled with fuel that isn't ours and wearing cotton we didn't grow. He's got the red, white, and blue flying high on the farm. Semper Fi tattooed on his left arm. Spend a little more in the store for a tag in the back that says USA. He won't buy nothing that he can't fix with WD-40 and a craftsman wrench. He ain't prejudiced, he just made in America. He loves his wife, and she's got that wife that decorates on the 4th of July but says every day's independence day, she's golden rule, teaches school. Some folks say it isn't cool, but she says the pledge the pledge of allegiance anyway. Born in the heartland, raised up a family of King James and Uncle Sam. He ain't prejudiced, he just made an America, made an America. My old man's that old man. He's made in America. One curious thing about American nationalism is that all of the messages are packed full of libertarian-sounding concepts, such as freedom and liberty. And what's unusual about this, uh, or maybe well, not unusual, but maybe what's kind of sinister about this, is that since we have, as we discussed in the last podcast, fascism without philosophy— It's disingenuous to have all of these messages of freedom and liberty tied into the worship of the state, which is the antithesis of concepts like freedom and liberty. And so, if we, as school kids or as schooled people, we keep on, you know, have this mantra like reflection of freedom and liberty is available to us because of our. Uh, nationalism or our fascism, then we can be easily hoodwinked into thinking we have those things uh, when we really don't. And so it, it sort of generates a large-scale uh, delusion and, and hypocrisy that's really unfortunate. Now, you could also look at that and think, well, isn't it good that we at least cherish those ideas of freedom and liberty uh, in our national culture and we don't have a philosophy which is Mussolini-like, where uh, we are taught that it's virtuous to all be uh, cogs in the larger machine, uh, that the the good, you know, the good for the country, you know, oversteps the good for the individual. Uh, that at least means if we if we have this idea that individualism and freedom and liberty are more desired concepts, we might be able to reveal the hypocrisy and. Uh, not have that sort of attitudinal fight that someone in fascist Italy or fascist Germany would have, uh, where you'd have to reverse the idea and actually tell them that liberty and freedom were good things. Uh, of course, I don't know. I, I don't know that much about Italian and German uh, fascistic nationalism. They might have very well used freedom and liberty in their marketing as well. Uh, marketing's not the right word. Propaganda. So what does nationalism help enable for those who benefit from it? And I would contend that it's not the citizenry that ever benefits from nationalism. It is the fascistic government system which absolutely uses nationalism as its propagandistic tool and uses mostly school as its delivery mechanism. But this allows them to do a lot of uh uh, irrational, things that would be seem irrational if we didn't have this uh, sort of religion of, of nation going on in America. So for one, I think all of our warring and defense spending would probably vanish if we didn't have this weird idea that we're the good guys and we're the good team and that whatever we're doing is moral and just regardless of looking at the activities themselves. So instead of looking at the Middle East and seeing a million dead bodies caused by our army, we would be appalled by that instead of thinking they must be doing something good because they have the red, white, and blue flag in their support. I think a lot of the fear uh, and xenophobia that we especially see in our presidential campaigns going on right now is is a large benefactor of nationalism because again as we talked about that's the only way that we can have total strangers associate with a with a group fear at the same time or a group of strangers associate with a uh, success that has nothing to do with them taxation a, a big part of people's Supposed guilt about avoiding taxes or not wishing to pay them or not paying their fair share all goes in with this national identity and the nationalism uh, religion that we have. I don't think taxation would be as easy to do if we didn't all believe that we sort of worshipped the same uh, God state. Our mandatory medicine and welfare and public education, all of those things would, if we eliminated this idea that we're this one national family, there wouldn't be, again, that, that motherland-type guilt put on that you have to take care of these family members who all have the same nation in common with you. Immigration laws and restrictions, that goes in with what we talked about, fear and xenophobia. Again, as we develop a and foster a nationalistic identity, we tend to be find it easier to reject and vilify people who don't have that. So it's us versus them. Automatically, just because of that flag and the song and the national identity, uh, we can take perfectly honest looks at poor Mexican people and feel that they're not suffering, but instead are attacking us. And then finally, the government itself projects itself at the center of the nationalistic religion, and the government itself claims its virtue by being of that nation And right there, that's probably one of the most disgusting things of this portion of fascism. So what would happen if we got rid of nationalism? What if we didn't have the flag and the national identity? And what if we didn't pump all those songs and those prayers into the children? And what if we didn't? Associate ourselves as being a collective with people we've never met before? Well, one, I I think if it never existed, I don't think anyone would miss it, even for a second. And if you never had it to begin with and someone said, hey, uh, here's this flag I want you to hang on your house and this prayer to the state that I want you to say every day at the beginning of school, I think people would find it completely ridiculous. And once it was gone, I think people would... Be able to look at all the awful things that the nation itself, uh, and by that I mean the government, does, and they would be able to honestly look at things like war and see that it's killing people, and look at school, and see that it's trapping children, and looking at taxation and saying that it's theft, and looking at welfare and mandatory medicine and public education and say, you know, these aren't things that we're obligated to do. Because there's this invisible thing called the nation, so I think everything would get a lot better, and I think we'd also be able to more clearly see how fascistic the government is. Is there anything that we can do to stop nationalism right now, today, in our daily lives? Not much, I don't think. The best thing that I can think of to do is is call bullshit. You know, when your children start to talk about it, you know, don't hang a flag at your house. I don't, I, you know, I don't know how much benefit it is that, you know, at the baseball game, if you don't stand up and sing the national anthem, you, you certainly don't can stop identifying yourself as American in sort of a political sense. Uh, it's still pretty convenient to be able to identify where you are on a map. So if you were in Europe, it's very handy to call yourself an American just so they know where you live. But you don't have to do so in a sense where you're identifying with the government and the nation itself. And otherwise, we can just keep on spreading the message and point out when things look kind of crazy and jingoistic and nationalistic. And of course, also, let's call it fascist on its face. Let's stop pretending that nationalism is a virtue on itself and realize that it's just a tool and a component of statism and fascism. The last thing I want to talk about are the goddamn New England Patriots. Now, the New England Patriots are an NFL football team who, for the last 14 years, thanks to Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, have been absolutely destroying the league, winning constantly, going, to winning their division, what, 12 or 13 times out of the last 15 years, going to the AFC championship game. Not 10 times since Brady took over, going to the Super Bowl six times and winning four of those. And the thing that's kind of weird is when I was watching the Super Bowl two years ago, which was the New England Patriots versus the Seattle Seahawks, I noticed that they have, you know, they have the banners out that say world champions, even though the game is only played in the United States. They have the hubris to say, that they're the world champions, uh, even though no other no other country is involved, and then before the before the game starts, they unveil this flag carried by military personnel that's the entire covers the entire length of the football field, and then they sing the national anthem, and everyone stands up and puts their their hand on their heart. Uh, after that, they have a military flyover where we get to see sort of an expression. Uh, of our military strength and then everyone cheers. Now, if you just took that scene, which seems perfectly ordinary to all of us, and you were to set it into North Korea and you, they were playing this game that no one else played and they only played it in North Korea, but they started out by trotting out that they're world champions, that they're the best in the world at doing this. And then you saw them all stand up and they, they pulled a giant North Korean flag Uh, off the field, carried by goose-stepping military people. Then they all stood up with their hand on their heart and sang the North Korean national anthem, and then they had some kind of military equipment fly over. You would be wholesale fucking scared that that was the most batshit, fascistic, dictatorship, crazy enslaved country you've ever seen. And yet, we watch it on TV in the exact same circumstance, except it's in the red, white, and blue... And we think it's totally normal. So that's pretty fucked up. Lastly, the New England Patriots are like my favorite thing in the world. Like, we're not quite the favorite. I'd say, if I had to make a list, it's my wife and children, and then the New England Patriots. I spend countless hours thinking about them, researching them, watching their games, and absolutely love them. But what really pisses me off is that they had to get stuck with that awful name, the Patriots, because I find. The patriotism concept to be one of the grossest, most disgusting concepts. You know, it's it's a collectivist concept by design. And so, why did they give like this most awesome football team this awful name when the Patriots are going to be so awesome? And then you know they could have you know they might as well have called them like the dog shit eaters or something like that. And then on the other side, you have someone like the Lions, who for the last fifteen years have been absolute horseshit. They even scored a perfect losing season. So wouldn't it be cool if, you know, they have this name where the lion is sort of this, this uh, regal, uh, respected, mighty African cat that can kill anything and is, you know, beautiful and powerful. Let's give that name to the winning Patriots so that the people who win are something awesome like a lion. And then to the shitty team in Detroit, they can be the Patriots. And everyone can associate patriotism and nationalism as something that just loses all the time and completely sucks. In closing, does the United States have some kind of cute nationalism. The fun kind of nationalism that lets you have a hot dog and a beer on 4th of July and maybe salute that flag that we all love. Or is it a big, scary, fascistic fuckstorm that's enabling evil in the world? I'll let you decide, but hopefully I've helped you pick one side or the other. Thanks so much.